truth. I believe sometime a few weeks ago we ministered an introductory message on this. But this evening I'd like to begin reading with verse number 5 through verse 9. The title of the lesson tonight is The Return Home. Ruth, the Old Testament book, beginning with verse number 5. And Malan and Kilian died, also both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her two daughter-in-laws, Go, return each to her mother's house, and the Lord deal kindly with you as you dealt kindly with the dead and with me. And the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And again, you'll notice there in verse number 6, it says in that first sentence, She arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. So this is why we call it the return home. This is a very moving book. And it's one of the few books in the Bible that highlight a lady, give prominence to a woman. And because of that, I, I think that the Lord puts this spotlight on someone who's an ancestor in David's lineage. Very often when we look into scripture, we don't find the kind of examples that we would want sometimes, but this one certainly is exemplary. The story of Ruth. A very short story, but nevertheless a powerful one. There was a famine in Judea. A husband wanted to take his family out of the famine, so he went to Moab, and that's where he looked for comfort. But while he was there, he lost his life. And then we know that two sons-in-laws died also. So in connection with this, we look at verse 4, where it tells us that the two sons took them wives. You know, marriage is a happy occasion. When two people join together in matrimony and in their own way, in their culture, they pledge their lives together. That union brings together tribes and clans and families. New relationships are begun. And I have no doubt that Naomi was a very proud mother and mother-in-law when she saw her sons marry these two Moabite women. But as verse number five goes on to tell us in the first sentence, they died also. Sometimes the funerals come too rapidly. Sometimes the funerals touch too close to home. Naomi had buried her husband, and now she's got two sons that have died. Scripture says this was a period of 10 years that she had lived in that area, but with the death of her husband and the death of her two sons, Moab became a different place to her. She started thinking about home. Some places where you have gone to move in order to 
start a new life, in order to build a family, sometimes that place doesn't seem so inviting when you lose the one that was there to help you build it. How many times have people moved to another state or gone to a particular place and they had a dream they wanted to pioneer together and unexpectedly somebody dies and then suddenly having that boat is no longer as important because we've lost a husband or a wife. And she began to think about what it is that, that that she could do, where she could go. She heard rumors that God had visited Judea, that the famine was over. So Moab, in her mind, became a place, why should I stay here? My own people are back in Israel. I don't mix with these people so well. I still have my daughter's in law, and she mentioned to them about returning home. And verse number six says, the daughters in law, they decided they'd go with mama and head with her all the way back to the land of Israel. She's ready to go home. Now, this is interesting to me in the sense that anytime you find yourself in a, in a transition period, you have to prepare yourself mentally and physically. Anytime you're going to go from here to there, from one location to another location, the preparation that's involved, transition. She has to turn away from what she has known in order to go back to her own place. It's a transition from the new to the old, from the old to the new. For Ruth, of course, Ruth was leaving what was familiar to her, her family, her country, the language that she spoke. She's going to something entirely new. She hasn't been to Israel. She's never dwelt there. But for Naomi, she's returning to home. She's going back to the old, but she's going back differently. She's not the same kind of a lady when she left. She left with a husband and two sons. She returns with a daughter-in-law. It's a period of transition. Moses was a young man that was raised up to be a deliverer. He murdered a man, spent four decades in the wilderness as a shepherd. God came to him in a burning bush and called him and spoke to him and said, I want you to deliver my people from Pharaoh. Moses didn't think he was capable of it. But the day and the moment he decided to follow God, that became a a time frame of transition for him. Because now he's got to make the journey from out there with his father-in-law and in his tent all the way back to Egypt to be the man that God wants him to be. He has to go back to what he was familiar with. That's what he did. Could you do that? When you pass through transitions in your life and you go from one place to another place, are you ready and able to deal with everything that it takes to make the change? You have to prepare yourself mentally. Because a lot of people have failed. There have been a lot of people trying to do one thing and try to do another thing. And in the process, they fail. But the children of Israel listened to Moses. and They had to prepare themselves physically. God even told the Israelites, go to the Egyptians and borrow from them silver and gold and trinkets. God gave them favor and they did. These people made their way out there in the wilderness. Transition is never easy. Because God takes your comfort zone and then he allows a few tests and trials to get into that comfort zone sometimes to move you into different directions. It's kind of like the story of the mother eagle. You've seen those nests in the documentaries. Those nests are huge. 
way up there in the clefts of a rock or in the hills someplace. And then when those eaglets, they get too big and it's about time for them to leave the house. You know, a lot of them, they're like many of us. They don't want to leave. Who wants to leave when you got three square meals a day and mom and dad looking after you? And so that mother eagle, she begins to pull some of those those comforts out of there, those feathers. And she's allowing some of those thorns to begin to prick those little eaglets. Pretty soon they've got to climb up on the edge and they've got to learn to spread them wings and fly. What is that? Transition? Transition. This mother in verse 6, she gets with her two daughter-in-laws and they begin to make their journey to the land of Israel because she heard God had visited the country. Now any visitation of God in scripture that is prominently displayed is one that leads us to talk about it. The touch of God, the move of God. When you consider that there was a famine in Judea and God opened the heavens so that the rains and blessing came, that's when the drought and everything disappeared. It's like around here. When we've had bad droughts and everything was dusty and brown, then God opens the heavens. Then pretty soon everything begins to change color. And this is what we're praying that God blesses us with in this area now, that God would open the heavens and pour forth his rain for an outpouring. And whenever God provides a visitation like that, everybody changes. The move of God changes temperaments. It changes personalities. You ever notice how happy people are when we have rain? It puts a smile on people's face. People enjoy coffee a little bit more when they get together and they talk about things. But when there's not the rain that we need, people, sometimes they grumble. They're not not as happy as they could be. But any move of God, I really believe if God starts doing something, people will talk about it and people will hear about it. When a revival breaks out and lives are changed, they instantly know what's happening. And in the history of this world, there have been many visitations of God. People understood God was real. Even in our own nation, in the 18th century, people talk very often about the the, the Great Awakening with George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. George Whitfield would get out there in the open air and preach to thousands of people without a microphone or a sound system. They say people would tremble under conviction as he preached over in those New England states. Jonathan Edwards, they say when he... Minister that sermon, sinners in the hands of an angry God, said the people very often reached in the front and grabbed the pew and just held on to it because they were under such deep conviction. There have been a lot of visitations of God where the Lord has ministered. Remember Peter Cartwright, the frontier preacher of the 19th century? This man traveled the length and breadth of this nation preaching under tents. This man did everything from be a gold miner to pastor churches, hold revivals. A lot of stories of those frontier preachers who went into areas where it was different and difficult, but they preached the gospel and lives were changed. I wonder how many counties went dry. By dry, I mean the saloon shut down. How many counties went dry because a man of God went and preached Christ, changed lives. That's a visitation. When a move of God occurs, it it results in changed lives. If it's a revival that people say is not changing lives, it's not a revival. But if God is doing something in you and God is doing something in me, it's always going to bring us closer to him. It's not that God is far from us, but we need to surrender more of ourselves to God. 
You can never give him enough. He gave his only, only begotten son. So when they heard that there was a visitation of God and that food had been restored. She said, there's nothing more for me here in Moab. Everywhere I walk in this home, I see my husband. Every time I traverse the landscape, I think of where my sons once played. I'm going back to Israel. And the daughter-in-law said, we're going with you. Well, why stay where you're in sorrow if God is showing you a place that he's visiting? I starve to death. Many people do that. They, they want to be fed. They're hungry, but they'll stay in one location where they're not fed. But yet the Lord is showing through through here that sometimes we have to be willing to go to be fed, even if the transition takes us a long distance. Think of that. You may have to drive a long way. You may have to walk far to get to where you can be fed, fed. But if you can find a place that is providing fresh bread, then Naomi and Ruth say, you ought to try to get there. Don't go alone. Take somebody with you. She didn't go back home by herself. She took her daughter-in-law. And her daughter-in-law was quite happy to be able to go with her. So in verse 7, it says they went out of the place, the daughter-in-law's with her. Now there is something interesting in this whole idea of the return to the land of Judah. Because the word Judah means praise. means joy. The story connected with this is from Genesis chapter 29. There was a gentleman by the name of Jacob who had a wife by the name of Rachel. He loved her deeply. But he also had a wife by the name of Leah, whom scripture says he hated. The Bible says when the scripture, when when the Lord saw that Leah was hated by Jacob, the Lord opened her womb. She began to conceive. Amazingly, even though Jacob seemed to hate this woman, he didn't mind visiting her tent for conjugal purposes. So he goes one night and he sleeps with her. She conceives. She has a baby. And I'm sure the whole time that baby was in her womb, she was singing and rejoicing because she knew now Jacob is going to really, really love me. And she named that child Reuben, because she said, the Lord has looked down upon me in my affliction. And every time she looked at that child, she was thinking, God is going to restore this marriage and help put us in a better spot. It didn't happen. Jacob didn't come around again. He still didn't like her. But he showed up sometime later for another visit in the night. And sure enough, she opened her arms wide. She conceived again. This time she named the child Simeon, which means Hearing, meaning that the Lord has heard my cry. He's heard my prayer. She thought for sure Jacob would change in his disposition towards her. How many people are there like that in this world that honestly believe if they continue to have one child after another for a man, that that man will turn his affection towards him? I've seen it over and over in the cities where you have one guy, he's got several girlfriends, each of them are trying to have babies by him because each of them wants him to become her man. 
This woman, Leah, was broken. Her heart was broken. She saw her sister with Jacob and Jacob loved her. And she still cleaved to the idea that one day life could be better for her. And she led him into the tent one more time and had another child named Levi. She said, because my husband will join himself to me now. You would think at this point she would have locked her tent and said, don't ever come near me again. She didn't do it. Because like so many people, she wanted to be loved. She wanted her husband to care about her. It was a patriarchal society. She let him come visit one more time. She had that fourth child, but I think the light finally came on. His name was Judah, which she named him. She said, now I will praise the Lord. See, it's easy to, to pass through situations where you're, you're forgetting that the God is actively helping you. But at some point in the midst of your trial, you have to turn around and say, at this point, from this moment, I'm going to glorify God rather than focus on my sorrows and my sadness. Think about that. Every child, the preceding children, she named them on the basis of her pain. Every time she looked at Reuben and Simeon and Levi, she had to think about her pain. Every time she called their name, she was reminding herself of her pain. But yet here with Judah, she thinks about praising God. See, that's the key, praising God. Here was a woman by the name of Naomi heading home with her daughter-in-law. They're making their way to Moab. You can see in Ruth chapter 1 verse 20. That when she arrived home, she said, do not call me gracious or pleasant, which is the meaning of Naomi. She said, call me Mara or bitter. Her life had been one of agony. She felt like I left with a full quiver. I'm coming home and the quiver is empty. She said, how can life be this difficult for me? And it seemed like God had stretched his hand out against me. She doesn't know that when she gets back to the land of Judah, God's going to turn her frown upside down. So in your most difficult moments, rather than focusing on the problem, why not return to the land of Judah or to the place of praise? You said, Pastor, how do I get back home to praise God? How do I get back to a place where I can worship God out of a pure heart and be content? Start with something very simple like the old hymn says, count your many blessings. Name them one by one. When you look at your life and you think about how good God has been to you, people you've met, places you've been, things you've done, you should be able to praise God. You came in tonight on your two legs, your two feet. You ought to thank the Lord that you're able to walk. Somebody else unable to do that. I heard somebody without a... I read about a man who was talking about a guy who didn't have a foot. And he said, I complained about not having a foot till I met a man who didn't have a leg. Begin to count your blessings. You go home to a, a house that the roof doesn't leak. You praise the Lord. Say, Father, I thank you that I have a place in which I can dwell. Thank you, Lord, that you blessed me with clothes to put on. Thank you that the cupboards are filled with food. You've been good to us, Lord. Thank you for the fact that we have family and friends. Thank you, Father, that I have a spouse that loved me, children that look up to me. 
Thank you, O God, that I have a vehicle that I can drive. I'm gainfully employed and I am happy with what I do. And I praise you because, Lord, you have made it possible for me to have provision in my pockets and provision to bless other people. That'll put you on the road to joy. Now, you can do like Leah. You can focus on your pain and you can do like Naomi and you can think about what you have lost. Or you can go back to the land of Judah and praise the name of the Lord. It's a choice. Christians are supposed to be the happiest people on the planet. But that's not always the case. You run into a lot of Christians. They're never pleased with anything or with anybody. They're constantly complaining about this. They're complaining about that. But I think sometimes it's always good to, to be able to take one of those praise pills and just be able to worship and thank God for how good he is. Next time. You feel like you're in a position where it's a time of transition. Start praising God along the way. Don't wait till you get to Judah. The story of the children of Israel, they came to the Red Sea. And you remember the Egyptians came behind them. Moses was in front of them. They said, Moses, you brought us out here to die. The Egyptians are back there. They said, we don't want to go back there. They're going to slaughter us. We can't drink all of this water. What are you going to do to help us? Moses went to God. God said, Moses, what do you have in your hand? He says, I've got a rod. He said, take that rod, stretch it out. He stretched it out over the Red Sea. It parted. The Bible says through one night, they all passed through there. An east wind blew through there and made it possible for them to pass. When the Egyptians tried to come through, the waters closed. And the Bible says the bodies of the Egyptians washed up on the shoreline. And on the other side, Miriam took a tambourine. And started leading the women in praise and, and worship and they were glorifying God and said, what a wonderful God we serve. What a mighty God we serve. Angels bow before him. Heaven and earth adores him. They were glorifying God. She had the right song. But they sang it on the wrong side of the sea. They should have sang it before it parted. Not just after it parts. Don't only praise God after he does the miracle for you. Praise him before he does it. You don't always feel like praising God. But this is what we learn. This lady Naomi tried to talk her two daughter-in-laws into going back home. In verse 8, she says, look, you, you, you folks need to go back to your mom and your dad. Stay here amongst your people where they speak your language, where you have this culture. They said, absolutely not. We're going to be with you. And I like the prayer that she prayed over them in verse 8 and in verse 9. She said, the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The kindness of God. You run it through a concordance and over and over again you see the phrase show kindness in the Old and New Testament. Because kindness is something to be displayed. We don't want to think of this as a noun. Think of it as a verb. It's something to do. To be kind to one another. In the sense that God has shown compassion, God has shown mercy to you as well as to me. And because of that, this lady says, I want God to restore and repay you the way you've repaid me. Now, if you want to know how civilized a culture is, look at how they treat their dead. Look at how they care for people that have passed on. Now, every culture is different. 
Been a lot of places in this world, seeing people do things that I would never want to imitate myself. But all cultures are different. You go into the Buddhist world and up in the mountains of of Nepal and some parts of Mongolia, when a, a man or woman dies, they don't even bury that body. They say the body is taken from the nutrition of the earth and, and from the animals of this world. So they, they all take that body out there and leave it in an open place and allow the vultures and other Canaveral beings to go after it so that they can devour it. You say, why is that? They're giving back to nature what has taken so much from nature. So the carnivores are happy about that. Well, in places in Africa, people pass away. They do different things. Someone dies and then later on in the annual celebrations of the uh, decedent's death. They'll come dig up that body, put that body on some kind of a gurney, and drag that body all throughout town because they want that body to be able to see all the new attractions and all the new buildings that have gone up since they died. You go into some parts of the jungles of South America, places of Papua New Guinea. <clears throat> some of my friends have been missionaries there, even to this day. They'll still devour the dead. You know, over there in uh, over there in East Africa, I was had to go to a engagement one time, and there was a missionary, I think, from Sudan, and they were telling a story about the pygmy people. They were saying how the soldiers over there in those areas, like to capture the pygmy. They're the ones that are short people with very big heads, very small body. And they like to capture these pygmy people and eat them because they believe their body, their flesh, is useful for medicinal purposes. Can you imagine? You can tell a lot about a culture by their care for the dead. Now, in all of those that I have mentioned, it's pagan. Pagan in the sense that it's ungodly. God gave us, he gave us instructions here in the Bible about how to care for the dead. We bury them for the purposes of knowing one day that body's coming up out of that grave in the resurrection. And that's the, that's where we've always imitated. That's where we've understand the scripture to take us. And so when, when it comes for the care of the dead, we, 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 we treat that person knowing that that individual, that body had been a temple of the Holy Spirit. We place that body in the ground like seed sown into the earth, according to first Corinthians 15, knowing that one day the trump of God is going to sound and the dead in Christ are going to rise up and we which are alive and remain shall be called away to be with the Lord. So shall we ever be with the Lord. That is why Christians are so different than other cultures, how we handle our deceased. This woman said, you cared for the dead kindly. You cared for me kindly. The Lord grant that to you and may each of you find rest. She considers rest the ability for a woman to find a husband and have a family. A home should be a place of rest. Your house should be the one place that where you go, you can walk in and that's where you can just just breathe a, a sigh of relief because of the peace and the presence of God. 
All the strife that you leave on the job, all the discord that you deal with in the community. When you step inside of your home, that's the one place where the peace of God should reign. And you should do everything you can to ensure that it's like that. Put on some gospel music. Find some Christian music that you can enjoy. Set the atmosphere. Create the tone in that place so that when you come home, you don't feel like you're fighting and wrestling with the people in your house, like you're fighting and wrestling with people on the outside whose personalities and temperaments are different from yours. The Lord grants you, ladies, that you find rest. Scripture teaches us that God wants us to have peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. You know, there are some people who don't go directly home after work because they don't enjoy being at home. If you don't believe me, watch watch it quitting time and then just kind of drive by some of the local saloons. Look at the cars that are out there. Got, got to go. Got to stop by the bar and just have at least one drink before I go home because I got to go home, deal with them kids and deal with my spouse. I need some liquor in me. That's the mentality. Folks, I'm telling you, I enjoy being with my wife and I enjoy going home every day. I enjoy going on a trip. And when I come back, I'm always happy when I get off that plane, walk down that that little runway area and then come down the escalator. And there's Tiffany standing there waiting for me. I know I'm going to be in the arms of peace. I'm going to find a rest. And I love her for that. But I also know there are a whole lot of people who aren't pleased with the one whom they're married. They don't have peace at home. Had to work at that. The prayer she prayed was the Lord grant that you find rest. You ought to apply that prayer to your life and say, God, let me have that every day also. Now to, to finish up, let me say this. If they're going all the way back to Judah because of a visitation, because they heard how God was giving bread. Now, let's not forget John chapter six, where Jesus said, I am that bread sent down from heaven at manna. Anybody that's looking to praise God and have their joy restored, you should be able to find that in Christ because he's the one that gives that true relationship with him. Spiritual bread, life giving bread. And when he dispenses it, I can promise you there's no corruption at all in it. There's no leaven in it. He blesses you immeasurably. If they could find that the Lord visited his people in giving bread in verse 6, then you should expect that in your own Christian life, Jesus gives that. He feeds the soul. How hungry are you? How thirsty are you for the things of God? You'll find that Jesus will be the one that provides whatever it is that you need. But somebody has to have a desire. It begins with an appetite. When the appetite comes, a person finds that they draw closer to him. And the scripture says he'll draw closer to you. But why live in Moab without bread? Why would anybody want to live in this world without God? Anybody living without God and without Christ is starving themselves. You see them every day. You meet them in the grocery store. Farmers meet them in the field. Mechanics meet them when they bring their cars in and out of the shops. Wives meet them each day. Teachers deal with them in the schools. You can't go anywhere in this world without running into people who starve themselves. And Jesus supplies the bread. I go into schools often to talk to young people and to teach different classes. And I am surprised at how many unhappy teenagers there are 
who don't want to go home and don't have an answer to how to fix their home. Nobody tells them about Christ. Nobody ministers to them the love of God. And when it is ministered to them, then a lawsuit begins because somebody has said the wrong thing. But folks, we have the answer. It's in this book. We have the answer. The last thing I'd say is this. If the Lord is going to deal kindly with them in regard to their family, then we want God to show his kindness on us. The scripture says in Ephesians that the riches of his grace and the riches of his mercy have been lavished upon us. You're a wealthy man or woman because of what God has done for you. So don't sit still in Moab and have a life filled with sorrow and depression and excessive sadness. Return home to Judah. Go back to praise. Go back to joy and worship and glorify him. Don't allow the adversary to rob you of that. The scripture says the joy of the Lord is your strength. If you want strong muscles, praise God. Praise him when you don't feel like praising him. So we praise him when the rain is here. We praise him when the rain hasn't come. We praise him on the good days, but we praise him on the bad days. But the one thing we don't fail to do, we don't fail to praise him. Amen? We don't fail to praise him. Let's stand. Praise the Lord. Now's a good time to pray for rain. Pray for a visitation. This area needs God to open up the heavens physically. But this area also needs God to open up the heavens spiritually. You realize with all the churches we have in this county that on any given Sunday, just from talking to preachers and listening to what they have to say, all the folks in this county on any given Sunday, you're lucky if you got 200 people in all the churches. That means you got a whole lot of people sitting at home and people that are not interested in God. But if God ever pours out his Holy Spirit upon his church, He'll change everything. But he's got to have a people that are hungry for him. Revival doesn't come to lazy people. It comes to folks that press in and pray and believe God. It comes to people that fast and trust him. They turn the plate down. They say, God, I want to see you move in my family, in our church, in our community. God will do it. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful this evening. We love you. We thank you. There's no one like you. You are incomparable. There are no gods that rival you because there is no God but you. You're the living God. And we're so grateful that you gave your only begotten son to die on that cross for each one of us. But in this region where we live right now, tiny, precious spot on the earth, oh God, we do need rain. We need you to open the heavens. Bless our farmers. Father, I'm praying specifically that you remember those farmers that love you and worship you and honor you. At one time in this book, it says you caused the dew to come up from the earth that was able to water the ground. And Father, what you have done, you're able to do again. Bless our Christian farmers, Lord. But you said you reign on the just as well as the unjust. And Father, those that do not know you as they receive a part of the overflow, we pray that you would turn their hearts toward you to know exactly what you're doing, that they can remember that your name is great in all the earth. We honor you. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name.
Amen, 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 amen.